0: Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them, our minds and think through them, and take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. A hundred years ago, 125 people gathered in a rented space on Northwest Savior Street, And at the first worship service of what would go on to become Portland Mennonite Church, they heard the words that Mary Lynn just read for us, Surely the Lord is in this place. A statement of faith grounded in our hope that God is with us. I imagine it was also a stretch of faith, because as I read history, a city like Portland was not the natural habitat for most Mennonites in the U.S. at that time. That's why they all came up from the valley. Most Mennonites back then were rural. They were agrarian. Most of the Mennonite settlers who came out to the Northwest came for the forests. They came for the farmland. There had already been two attempts to establish a mission in Portland. Mission, that's an interesting phrase, like going to another country. Uh, One of those efforts disbanded when most of the volunteers moved back down to the valley. They moved back to Hopewell. It also just occurred to me this week that a 100 years ago, they were also emerging from a pandemic. The Spanish flu. I can't imagine trying to plant a church or begin a congregation in the wake of the pandemic we have just come through. But in 1922, they gathered and they trusted. Surely the Lord is in this place. A hundred years later, I would like to think that those 125 hardy souls would be... Not proud, but deeply satisfied that their faith took root and has thrived. These last 10 weeks, we've learned a lot about the last 10 decades of this congregation. And this Sunday, there's the last insert in the bulletin. And I'm grateful to Harold and to Lynn for um, the work they put into uh, producing these from week to week. Uh, we've learned that the congregation that gathered there on November 12, 1922, grew almost immediately and the first Easter Easter 1923 240 people 150 of which were children from the neighborhood Uh, they were very keen for the community to hear the good news in fact one of my favorite stories is from the 30s Glenn Whitaker was the superintendent at that time and one Sunday he put a loudspeaker on the roof of the building so that the neighbors could hear his sermon (laughs) whether they wanted to or not And it turns out they were not as keen to hear it as he was to preach it. And Wayne Gingrich, who wrote a history, uh, sort of wryly noted that effort did not last too long. (laughs) But tent revivals uh, were held up until World War II. The largest uh, largest attendance was 700 people. Uh, That group eventually started uh, what's considered to be the first summer camping program in the Mennonite church. So whenever you go to Drift Creek camp, you can be grateful to them. Uh, it was in the 50s that a number of young men, conscientious objectors, began moving to Portland for alternative service, and how, some of you are still here. How many of you moved out to Portland for 1W or conscientious objection uh, service, alternative service? Yeah, and that was, uh, that was a part of the transition from a mission to the kind of congregation that we know today. Uh, in the late 60s, the congregation moved to this meeting house in southeast Hawthorne, and... Um, a number of families at that time, including the pastor Marcus and his wife, moved into the neighborhood intentionally. Very soon after, started a preschool that became Sunnyside Mennonite Montessori School, uh, school that still provides affordable and quality uh, early childhood education to families and children in our neighborhood. Uh, there's a remarkable story of the Fairtrade Christmas market. On one of the weekends leading up to the holidays, this congregation would hold a Fairtrade market and in a weekend would sell $50,000 of crafts that supported the families of artisans around the world. That later became a year-round, it's in the office that Kristen is now just starting to occupy, before it moved over to Hawthorne and was self-help, and then 10,000 villages, and eventually moved on to the Pearl District. Uh, And now, among other things, we're hosting homeless families, uh, families who are experiencing homelessness uh, through the Family Promise uh, Metro East program. Next Sunday, we're going to have our second uh, uh, group here, so make sure to sign up in the back. There are still some volunteer slots open. All these years later, we are still trusting, surely the Lord is in this place. But in the scripture we heard this morning from Genesis 28, Jacob says something more, doesn't he? Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I mean, surely the Lord is in this place. Yeah, sure, you expect to hear that on a Sunday morning, but I did not know it. That's interesting. That's intriguing to me. And to make sense of it, it's helpful to remember Jacob's story. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their stories run through the book of Genesis. To this day, you can still go to Jacob's tomb. Jacob is, at least by tradition, buried at the tombs of the patriarchs in Hebron, which is a city south of, of Jerusalem uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the West Bank. Um, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah are buried there. It is a site that is revered by it's a holy site, albeit a controversial and contentious site for Jews and Muslims and Christians. But at this point in the story, Genesis 28, Jacob is fleeing for his life. Jacob has an older twin, Esau, and they have an intense sibling rivalry that began in the womb. And if you went to Sunday school, you might remember, or if you're in Sunday school now, you might hear the story. One of them is of Jacob um, taking advantage of his famished brother Esau and trading him a pot of stew for his birthright, his inheritance. And later, Jacob fleeced, literally fleeced his brother out of their father Isaac's blessing. And Esau is so enraged, so bitter, so furious that he has decided he is going to kill his brother Jacob. Rebecca, their mother, who is her own very complicated character in this story, warns him, and Isaac sends him far away, and that's where the story picks up this morning. Jacob finds himself alone. He lies down using a stone as a pillow, and he has a remarkable dream. He sees a ladder that stretches up to the heavens, angels ascending and descending. He hears the voice of the Lord. He hears words of blessing. He hears the promise, I am with you and I will keep you wherever I go. It is a remarkable story of the grace of God because Jacob is a scoundrel. He's conspired with his mother. He's deceived his father. He's stolen from his brother. He is fleeing for his life, and God still blesses him. God still promises to be with him. I have a brother. We have had our rivalries, When we were younger, it sometimes came to blows. But I never wanted to kill him. Rough him up a little, sure. I mean, we were boys, and I didn't grow up a pacifist, so, you know. Uh, Some of us have lived through family stories of deceit and destructiveness and disintegration, really difficult stories. It is hard for most of us, though, to match the dysfunction of this biblical family. And all of us, I suspect, have at times felt alone, Uh, unmoored, uncertain, lost, uh, even if we never ended up using a stone for a pillow. Jacob's sin outpaces most of us, and that's why it's so powerful that God still says to him, because if to Jacob, then to all of us, God still says, I am with you, and I will keep you. That grace, that gift is the gospel. It is the good news. God is with us. God is with you. When you are alone, you are afraid. When we've failed, when we've fallen short of, of the lives we intended to live or the people we hoped we would become, when you're stuck, maybe when you're living with the consequences of your own bad choices or still pretending that you can wiggle your way out of it, God promises even then, especially then, to be with us and to be with us with the mercy and the wisdom and the love that can forgive and heal and grant us a fresh start. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Jacob couldn't have expected it. I did not know it, he says. That's the surprising grace of God. But here's the thing it's not just for Jacob, and it's not just for you, and it's not just for me. God promises to be with Jacob. God makes the promise of land, makes a promise of a future, but it is for a purpose. And you hear that picking up in verse 13 of chapter 28. I'm the Lord, the God of Abram, your father, and God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And here's the key phrase. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. All the families of the earth. Now think about Jacob. His own family has disintegrated. He's on his way hoping to find a wife among his kinfolk in the distant desert. And that's a pretty wild story in itself. You ought to read that one on your own. Jacob, as unlikely as it seems, has a role in what God means to do. To bless all of the families of the earth. All of the families of the earth. God is with Jacob, but not just Jacob. God is with us but not only us. The God of Abram and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebecca, of Jacob and Leah is not a tribal deity. The peace, the mercies, the loving kindness, the justice of God is as close, as intimate, as personal, as the deepest places of our hearts and minds and souls, and it is as expansive and inclusive and pervasive as all of creation Surely the Lord is in this place, but not only this place. God means to bless all of the families of the earth. And Jacob, of all people, has a role to play, and we do too. And like Jacob, it requires a willingness to be surprised. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I did not know it. To be part of what God means to do requires a readiness to be surprised. Like Jacob, it requires a readiness to dream dreams, to see remarkable visions, to listen to the unexpected voice of God. PMC is 100 years old now. 100 years. That's old. And we all know that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And now that I'm in my, I'm in my 60s, my wife says that more and more about me. Apparently, I can get a little stuck in my ways. Who knew? But as we enter our second century, it's gonna be especially important for us to nurture this willingness to be surprised and to learn new tricks. Because one of the things that happens to churches, and it happens to a lot of organizations, but I think churches are most susceptible to it. As churches get older, there's a tendency to shift into maintenance mode. And the mission of the church becomes maintaining. Maintaining ministries, maintaining a building, maintaining organizational structures. And it's easy to understand why. At our best, there are a lot of ministries and programs that have been meaningful. There are a lot of good things going on. And if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. Just keep doing it. At our worst, uh, we get afraid. We want to keep the doors open. We want the church to survive. If you're a pastor, you want to keep getting paid. But when the mission becomes maintaining what has been, then inevitably, it turns us inward and it turns us backward. And that posture limits our ability to see and dream and imagine. And we easily miss the scope and the breadth and the trajectory of what God means to do. You know, as the story goes on in Genesis 28, uh, Jacob's first instinct after this encounter, this experience of grace, is to uh, take that stone that he used for a pillow and to build a memorial to Mark to preserve what happened. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in the scriptures, God doesn't seem very interested in being tethered to the past. When God speaks, the language is active and it's purposeful. The language is outward-looking and forward-looking. And often what God says is surprising, and sometimes it's difficult, even unwelcome. Usually it's challenging, because that's what it will take if all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed. We're at the start of our next hundred years. I have very little idea what's ahead. Three years ago, ago, I had some pretty good ideas and then the pandemic scrambled everything. We're not very good at seeing the future, but we can imagine the destination. We can imagine the day when all the families of the earth will be blessed. We can imagine the time when God's kingdom will come And God's will be done on earth as in heaven. We can imagine the possibilities, the promise of the beloved community where everyone is welcome, everyone is loved, everyone has what they need to thrive. So in these next hundred years, or this next decade, or this next six months, or next week, I hope we will always be grounded in the grace of God. I hope we will always be ready to be surprised. And I hope we can always say, like Jacob, and like those 125 people 100 years ago, I hope we can always say with great faith and great hope, surely the Lord is in this place. Thanks be to God.